0: The, the amplifiers now are really quite extraordinary by comparison to what they were. Uh, I, I can actually show um, the frequency response curves, which it sounds awfully techno geeky, but um, it, it's actually how you judge an amplifier. In, in the original old days, and I'm older than some of the old days in this field. Um, let me do a screen share here. Um This is actually uh, two amplifier response curves. Uh, uh, The QSI amplifier in Canada was miscalibrated, and this curve was to show the miscalibration. You had to divide the QSI values by two because they miscalibrated their amp. And they they compared it to the Massachusetts amp that was being used by Bob Thatcher in his database. And you can see the response curve Below one, this goes from uh, low frequencies to higher frequencies up near forty, and this is uh, the essentially the percentage of the original signal which should stay at one hundred percent at the one line here. Well, you can see uh, um, at, at about one hertz or so, it drops off precipitously as. And it's difficult to have a DC amplifier back in the late 60s, early 70s when this amp was current. But it, it, it generally follows close. There's about a 12% overestimation in the low 20s of the beta frequencies. And then it drops off precipitously at about 25, 26 Hertz. Uh, at 40 Hertz, 90% of the signal is gone. So you really can't see gamma. So uh, the, the Roy John who used the same amp stopped his database at 25, and Bob Thatcher stopped his database at at 30 uh, because the amplifier couldn't show anything faster. Now, uh, a modern amplifier isn't uh, as unstable as this. Uh, They actually can go down uh, very close to being DC all the way to zero. Uh, They don't have the overinflation issue, and they roll off uh, much faster. Uh, a medical amplifier should go from somewhere below one hertz, usually somewhere below half a hertz, up to 70, not up to 30, but 70. So this is not a medical grade amplifier that you could use in a hospital for medical EEG. This is an old amplifier that was as good as it was back then. But it's like a 1950s Chevy. It's a great old car for putting around, but Unless you're a mechanic with a good budget, don't drive across country with it because you're going to have breakdowns. Uh, it, it, it was a good, a good car in its era. Uh, but, you know, there's a lot of regular cars now that are better than that as far as the reliability and, and uh, the quality of, of the engineering. Um, if, if we compare uh, that, to, this is the Mitzar amplifier. This is a log curve. So this is 0 to 1, 1 to 10, 10 to 100. So it, it's not the same rolling off at 20 hertz. This is 10, 20, 30. It would basically have dropped off uh, f- fairly uh, quickly here, um, uh, uh, not. Gone out to seventy, which is a medical grade amplifier, and the amps are relatively linear through the passband. Uh, they don't overinflate and then underinflate. They're fairly accurate in their their estimation. And the, the uh, there's there's actually three amplifiers listed here: two hundred one, and I actually have one of the old two hundred ones. It's got Russian writing on the front panel. Uh, 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 I don't think anybody else in the U.S. actually has one of these. It was an older style uh, that that had a single amp chip that they multiplexed through. So if you remontage, there was a certain amount of error. Everybody calls their 201M the 201. So uh, the, the the blue curve doesn't exist anywhere un- unless you have an antique device like I might have. Um, and you can see it it rolls off uh, at, at about a half a Hertz, it rolls off. Uh, the others are, are good down to a, about a 10th of a Hertz before they roll off some. And uh, all of them go up to 70. The 202 goes up to about 150 Hertz before it rolls off. So, uh, you know, amplifiers are well-designed now. And if you take an, a modern amplifier with a linear response, and you force fit it to the database that has an old amplifier that it's built upon, you have to warp this linear amp down to a curvilinear uh, uh, distorted uh, frequency spectra to match the database. And if you have a database that was built on that amp, you have to match it. uh, So you have to destroy a linear curve to match your database. Um, databases that were collected on modern amplifiers don't have to warp something down to them. They basically have a nice linear uh, response and uh, most modern amplifiers are uh, transposable. Uh, uh, Different sampling rates obviously have to be corrected for uh, the, the subtle differences at the low frequency and high frequency end. generally have to be looked at, but the modern amps are awfully stable by comparison. The, Good old they, days were good old days. They were the bad old days.
1: But they, uh, it's not always just about the amplifier. It's also about the software. Yes. And yes. Um, and and I tried a couple of software. And um, even though the meets are like, for example, amplifier is really good, and the database also like uh, the the for example the near feedback software that they provide with is is let's say very limited in in what you can. Yeah. It up in terms of training. Um, and, and for me and from, from my experience, um, it's really important also.
0: Yes, it, uh, the, there's a difference between assessment and training. And uh, assessment, the quality of the amplifier is much more critical. Uh, uh, for training, the, the training software is absolutely crucial. Uh, it, if you're using an amplifier to do infralow frequency training or infraslow training, you're interested in content down here in the very low frequencies. content up at the fast frequencies are not terribly relevant for you, mm-hmm. um, but activity below one hertz is obviously crucial. Uh, so, um, uh, uh, And how you feed it back um, uh, is crucial as well. So uh, different feedback uh, uh, groups end up having to be very careful not only what amp, but what kind of electrodes if you're doing slow cortical potential or infra slow training, and you're not using a silver chloride or a DC resistant um, uh, uh, electrode, uh, there uh, silver chloride's a classic. But there's, uh, it, there's carbon uh, fiber and there's silicon uh, electrodes that are also DC stable, but they're rare. They're mostly research labs use those. Uh, but the silver chloride electrodes are are uh, able to be used and then you can actually look at the low frequencies without the uh, the measurement itself negatively influencing the, the measurement. If you have a regular electrode, DC current can flow along the wire. And if you have silver chloride, you're sensing the field outside of the wire, but it doesn't allow current to flow into the wire uh, in the same way. So uh, you're you're not loading down the uh, signal that you're measuring so you can measure it accurately. Uh, uh the, the normal baseline drift in an EG is somewhat eliminated. It, if there's movement, it's not eliminated, but just baseline drift of, of the electrode itself, which is present in regular electrodes with polarization potentials. It's just not present in, in, uh, uh, in, uh, silver chloride electrodes. So, uh, um, Electrode systems are critical, not just the amp. Um, software that you're feeding it back with are critical, not just the amp. But um, it's astounding, uh, uh, the, the changes in the amps over time. I can show you dry sensor technologies that have fabulous amplifier responses, but the difficulty with them is the skin contact. You know, If you have a jitter on the skin contact, the amp might be linear, but your signal is terrible. Uh, so you, you have to have more than just the the technical detail of the AMP, but the AMP itself is the base that everything else has to be built upon. And uh, so it's getting the AMP right is critical. What I would suggest for most people is that you look around in a clinical meeting and find the, the, the people that you want to affiliate with and see what they're using. Uh, because you're going to end up being dependent upon those around you for support and mentoring uh, and sometimes formal supervision. Um, mentoring isn't quite the same as supervision. Supervision has got some very specific legal implications, but um, you're going to need people uh, to end up supporting your work, and uh, 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 they're going to know the equipment they're working with, and they may not really know the Depth of another brand of equipment. So look around for the people you want to work with. And the amps that they're working with are what you're going to end up needing to know. Uh, but find the clinicians or uh, trainers. I mean, not everybody's a clinician. There's athletic trainers that use neurofeedback, and there's meditation people that use neurofeedback. Find the group that you fit in with and want to learn with and grow with and uh, um, and you know, pick up what they're uh, uh, working with and see if that's what you feel comfortable with. Uh, but it, you have to affiliate yourself with uh, like-minded uh, people with a similar goal uh, in order to really uh, prosper within the field.
1: Yes. So I can tell from my experience. So I started with BrainMaster because I worked with Ron mm-hmm. and this is what he used for years um, and at the time, the, the, I had an impression that um, I, I didn't find a lot of work on this in terms of research, but they uh, really encouraged maybe to use z score. Um, and, and I tried a couple of times and it worked really well, but I felt that there's something is missing for me. Um, besides the classical like protocols um, that we used to do, like SMR and um, alpha app, app training, etc, um, And then what happened is that at a certain point, I um, encountered Sieburn work,
0: yeah.
1: which I found to be easier to implement in, in a clinical setting, like, uh, like in psychiatry. Because you had a very simple, you know, kind of like three possible protocols that you need to adjust in terms of regulation. So I could train people that are not uh, very knowledgeable uh, with EEG and electrophysiology and physiology, how to actually downregulate or upregulate or stabilize um, uh, arousal. Um, so I and also like the, there were some um part of the language is something that could be easily worked with a lot of the psychotherapy um languages. Um so this is one of the things I I I used in the hospital, which I really liked. Um and then slowly I actually discovered more Europhenotypes, um, which I haven't tried yet on patients. But um, but it definitely helped me to better understand um, some of the symptoms. So so for me, there's as you as you hear, there was a whole discovery of different domains and, and groups, and now it's the moment of, um, as you said, to whom I affiliate myself with, and, uh, followingly, what I buy, you know, in terms yeah. of yeah. devices. Uh, so it's interesting that you didn't give any names uh, or brands or whatever. You you generally said you know most amplifiers are good, etc. So I wonder. I don't know. Probably Pete will going to edit it, <laughs> but I'm just saying like why 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 like you're not, do you have favorites? Do you have something you find more reliable? Could you share this or it's something uncomfortable?
0: Um, You know, the the ones that are not able to work well, um, I basically don't work with. And, um, and, you know, it's not like I'm uh, not able to call out which ones are not working well. Uh, it's, It's just that they've faded away to the point where if I mention their name, uh, they actually have more interest in them than if I don't. <laughs> and uh, they're faded away almost to non-existence. Why should I mention their name and give them more energy? You know, there there, there are amplifiers that um, uh, were were built um, by people that have big names in the field. And uh, they, they built a bad amp, um, but the amp has basically gone away. So I, I don't want to... Uh, disparage the major figures in the field when their amplifier that didn't work went away, but was still being sold. I would be telling people that you should avoid it. But uh, um, the, the, the amplifiers are basically uh, uh, virtually non-existent now. And uh, here, here, let me was, help
2: you out. Let me help you out, Jay. Mind Media, Look, St- Steve Sturt, I, anything I've gotten from them, well, Steve Stern's
0: retired, and Mind Media uh, uh, is basically Nexus um, uh, amplifiers. And <clears throat> pardon me, Nexus amplifiers were uh, a, a, an extraordinarily high-quality amp when they were initially built. Um, others have come up to the same general quality at this point, but um, uh, they, they had um, uh, an actively shielded um, electrode, so. Uh, DC fields, static fields moving near the patient weren't influencing the recording. Um, If you go back to some of the very early amplifiers, you could shuffle your feet on the carpet 20 feet away from the client and make the signal go crazy. So uh, um, the the mind media had the the Nexus uh, amplifier, which was actually an EMG amplifier chip that went from DC to 800 hertz. And 800 hertz, nobody in EEG goes there, you know. But if your amplifier overperforms, it's okay, you know. <laughs> um, uh, you don't have to go up to 800. It gives you that if you want. But um, uh, the, the it was a, a linear uh, uh, amplifier chip that was applied uh, to EEG uh, quite quite well. Um, uh, software to operate it, uh, maintenance, things like that, end up being the difference at that point. The amplifier quality is, uh, you know, quite solid. Um, so,
1: I w- what would w- you buy? Let's say tomorrow you want to set up a clinic. Give me something.
0: <laughs>
1: what <laughs> well, would you buy? For it, example, it, it, if it or? was
0: if it was for analysis purposes, uh, first of all, uh, I'm going to want an amplifier that has an FDA five ten k. As an EEG amplifier, and um, and and that's that's a diagnostic medical amplifier.
1: Which uh, one? I, it, you were caught. I, I did Well, know.
0: there there's amplifiers that are there that uh, are approved as a general health and wellness or a neurofeedback amp that don't necessarily have themselves qualified as a diagnostic amplifier. Mm-hmm. If you're going to use the amplifier in a diagnostic. Way you should have one that qualifies. So um, you, you need to be aware that uh, that there are amps that are registered with the FDA as a neurofeedback amplifier that aren't intended for diagnostic purposes. Uh, that uh, you you know pay close attention to what the filing with the FDA was, and that's easy to do. Uh, you, you can uh, punch in FDA and the name of the company that you're interested in and all of the FDA uh, rules and regs and everything about them all pop up online. You can see quickly uh, whether they're registered as a diagnostic EEG amplifier or if they're registered as a neurofeedback amplifier. Um, uh, that, that, That changes a lot. If I have uh, the intention of doing a diagnostic workup on somebody, and I've got an amplifier that's a general wellness amplifier. Um, uh, uh, NeuroOptimal is a, is a, a general wellness amplifier. It's a fabulously good amp. It, it does a nice job amplifying the EEG. It's linear uh, and all of that. But if I make a diagnostic impression based on it. Um, and it goes into a med legal circumstance and the other side says, well, you're using a general health wellness amplifier and you're making a diagnostic impression. Uh, you're not using a diagnostic amplifier. So the, there's reasons to be, uh, uh, careful when you're in my position of actually historically having written medical reports. So, uh, it, uh, there, there, there are devices that are, uh, perfectly appropriate for the kind of thing they're intended for uh, general health and wellness. Uh, But if you claim to treat something with that, uh, then you're actually outside of the FDA approval for the device. Uh, If you're going to treat something, you actually have to have a, a biofeedback device or a feedback device that's approved for that, not just general health and wellness. And if you're making uh, work with somebody on a uh, on a more medical uh, circumstance. You, you you may want to have a an actual medical uh, uh, amplifier, diagnostically appropriate amp. Um, so there there's those three levels of uh, of amplifier. Is it a is it a medical uh, device amplifier for clinical EEG? Is it a pro, you know look up the Mitzar uh, and their database. And and you'll find that they're listed as a diagnostic device. Uh, Look up other software uh, uh, and and hardware uh, devices within the the field, and you'll find that they're listed as non-diagnostic. What's the difference? Well, the MITSAR is oriented towards the medical EEG, and the QEG is an extension of that medical EEG. So it's a diagnostic device. Mm-hmm. If the amp, if the software and amplifier are intended to acquire the signal and then process it as a cue without the EEG being the diagnostic, you know, piece of that, uh, then it's not the diagnostic device. It's a neurofeedback device, but it's, it's not intended for diagnosis. The, the, the Again, there's three levels of of FDA: medical EEG amplifier, a neurofeedback amplifier, and a general health and wellness amplifier. There's three separate classifications. Now, not every other company, not every other country is going to have those same differentiations. Ultimately, they're a little bit arbitrary. You know, uh, you know the the device that's intended for neurofeedback could just as easily be. A, a, a diagnostic device. And it's just a matter of what they file for, and uh, uh, but the the FDA filing ends up changing what it looks like if I have to go to court with it. So, and having been in traditional you know medical interpretation, um, you know courts just a half a step away half the time. So, um, and somehow I made it through fifty years with no litigation. <music>
1: Hey, this is Karen. I'm a neuroscientist and neurotherapist from Tel Aviv, and you're listening to the NeuroNoodle Podcast.
2: Welcome to Neuronoodles, Neurofeedback, and Neuropsychology Podcast, featuring a neuropsychologist Dr. Laura Jansen's Tech whiz, Neurofeedback Legend Jay Gunkelman and author of Neurofeedback and the Treatment of Developmental Trauma, Seaburn Fisher. Our goal is to provide information, promote options for better mental health. This is an all-star cast that are more than happy to share their knowledge with you. My name is Pete, and today we have a special guest, Karen Ervami. She's a neuroscientist and has some questions for us today. We're going to talk about neurofeedback devices and equipment. But before we get to Karen, we have some Patreon love to dish out. We'd like to thank our Patreon business supporters as well as our show supporter. Mary Tracy's Neurotraining Strategies offers a higher standard of EEG, QEG, Education to EG clinicians, technicians, and neurofeedback practitioners with convenient online BCAA and QEG certified didactic courses. Okay, three things our listeners and viewers can do to help spread the word. Please don't fast forward. Please, we need your help. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. And if you like the video, which you will, please hit like and click the bell so it lets you know when our new podcasts come out. That little action can take three people from learning about neurofeedback to 3,000. Please pay it forward. Hey, give us number two. Give us a review on whatever platform you listen to. You know, we'll take five stars, but Jay will accept four and a half stars on Apple Podcasts. And if you have the means, please support us on Patreon slash Noodle. There are different levels in which you can support whether you're a mom or dad or a clinician. There's even an option where you can have your own Q&A with Jay Gunkelman. Hey, the support helps us improve the quality of our content. Trust me, nobody's driving a Mercedes off this podcast. Okay, let's talk with our neuroscientist, Karen. Karen, how are you? Welcome to the show. Thank you for showing up. You're a neuroscientist. Please tell us more about you.
1: Well, what to say, where to start. Um, so... I've started with neurofeedback about eight years ago, after I finished my PhD. Um, and I always worked, I mean, since I started um, to learn about the brain in my master, um, I always worked in um in clinical settings, in psychiatry and neurology, so a lot of applied neuroscience. And I um actually started to get to know neurofeedback only about eight years ago uh, with uh, Dr. Doron Toder, who is today um, a chief uh, hospital, like psychiatric hospital. Um, And then we uh, used uh, certain devices, certain equipment, certain protocols, I think a lot um, influenced from how he was supervised by Jay. Following this experience, I was actually offered to set a neurofeedback unit within a psychiatric hospital, and that was a big challenge. I also like to to know know, which patients to to offer this service, for how long, because it's not like a private clinic. We cannot do whatever we want because people come and pay and it's not really paid by the the public uh, system. So we needed to find a solution in between solution and to find uh, who can be part of the team because one person cannot do it by itself. Uh, We also had in this research unit, which I was the head of the research, um, actually a lot of different EEG devices that were uh, used more for research. Um, and they could provide us more um, like ERPs and EEG, like spectral EEG, all sorts of different analyses. Um, and, and then we try to combine all this information into the clinical information that was gathered by the, uh, by the clinical team and to try to figure out how to think about it you know, in a, in a vast way. Because obviously physiology... Um, plays a very, very big role in all diseases and especially in psychiatric disorders. And, And I think we had relatively to the fact that we had a lot of limitations um, because people, we needed to train people again and again, and then, you know, not all doctors, um, uh, participated or agreed to, to, to let, to let a try, you know, um, then w- I think we had a very good success with very, very, very difficult patients, meaning p- patients that were in and out of the hospital for years. And following that, I actually started to work in uh, startup companies that, uh, develop EEG uh, diagnosis and treatment. And now I'm going back to a hospital, like a general hospital. Um, And and therefore I was approaching to ask questions in terms of which devices uh, to buy. And you have to keep in mind that even though like um, we have great connections with the US, I'm not in the US. So for me, not everything is accessible as easily. In for many reasons, like also the delivery process, the taxes, et cetera, et cetera. And I already had a couple of, uh, like once that I made a choice and I bought something that ended up to not work well. So this is one of the reasons I actually wanted to talk about how we decide about devices, about um, diagnosing procedure, database, um, et cetera.
2: Uh, Before Jay gets rolling here, Karen, you're in uh, Tel Aviv, right, Israel? Okay, Jay, it's crazy. More than a third of our viewers aren't from the the States. I mean, it's insane. Karen, tell me, what's the adoption like on neurofeedback and EEGs over in Israel? Uh, Do you know if it's more or less in the United States or you don't know or maybe Jay can pop it? I'm just worried what it's like. I know what it's like here in the Midwest of the United States trying to talk about neurofeedback. I wonder what people think about it over in Israel.
1: EG is used only for neurological disorders, mainly epilepsy and maybe brain injury uh, and sleep labs, of course. But uh, we don't, besides some hospitals like psychiatric hospitals, just because of research purposes and then you know, there's a whole thing about how how great it is to have like uh, technologies, etc. But then it's really hard to integrate them into the clinical practice. So, I, I in the brain unit in the brain research unit at the hospital, I had about five different EEGs. But then to actually ask doctors to send patients and to learn how to use this kind of information, even if I actually was the bridge all the time I I gave the interpretation I explained what we can do with it still it was really really hard so there's something in the edu- education that is really lacking for me um, yeah that's and- that's
2: what I'm looking for because this can't grow unless the schools teach it people won't use it unless there's some somebody's going to pay for it besides themselves. Uh, is there social uh, health care in Israel or what's the healthcare like there?
1: It's, it's a public medical system. So um, for really small amount of money, you're pretty much covered. Um, but a lot of these extra things that will move into the insurance level more easily in the US because it's private won't happen here in Israel. Like for example, TMS. TMS was even though one of the TMS providers like was actually came from Israel. It was approved only about a year ago, which was not the case in the U S because you have private insurance and private medicine, you know, there's positive things and negative things, but even what I want to say that this is even when everything is accessible and there's someone who's responsible for it and it's for free, it doesn't mean that the doctors will use it. Patients are craving for different types of uh, therapies, you know, and mm-hmm. some doctors use it to say, oh, I'm doing something uh, technological, something new, etc." Some doctors really interested in integrating the brain, but most doctors, you know, it's really far away from them. It's, yeah, not exactly. an
0: easy, it's not an easy thing to adopt. You know, the, the learning curve on EEG and neuroscience in general is one of the steeper learning curves in life. And it may be the right learning curve to be on, but it doesn't make it any easier. Uh, even if there's many people on it, it's still very difficult to ratchet your way up in the level of knowledge. Uh, where, where, do you, where do you go to learn about EEG? well, historically, you had to look over the shoulder of somebody who was looking at an EEG. And uh, there may be online courses now, but it's not as rich an interactive environment as it was when you're one-on-one or maybe a few with one uh, l- looking at EEGs, um, w- which is one of the reasons I'm doing quite a few small groups of just looking at EEG as a as a, a way to spend some of my time. But it, it, it's difficult to get... Um, a new technology, even though this is 50 years old, new, um, it's difficult to get a new technology uh, in uh, to active practice. If the schools were teaching it at a high level uh, and we uh, had doctors who were uh, experienced in it in school, uh, they came out into practice. They'd still be a junior practitioner, what they could do would be largely regulated by the uh, senior people within their practice. But, you know, maybe four or five years later, they could be doing some of the things that they wanted to do. So it, it takes time to penetrate. I have to say that it's actually more integrated and involved now than it has been historically. Uh, but it's hard to see that uh, in the U.S. people that are U.S. centric. And that's pretty easy to be. In the U.S., people understand New York and California and Texas, but in, in between is kind of a, a, a big wasteland in some people's minds. But the, 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 the U.S. has areas that have very little, if any, you neurofeedback. Know, um, it, it's, uh, it's got centers that are uh, well populated with practitioners, but there's a lot of area in the U.S. that doesn't have anybody. And it, it's going to take a long period of time before it's fully penetrated the market. Uh, our, our customers don't know who we are, they don't know how to get a hold of us, and they don't know what we do. So it's it's not an easy market to expand. Uh, uh, it, 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 it's a difficult thing to advertise, um, but the, the it, it's growing, and it's more uh, proliferated worldwide now than it has been ever before. Uh, The level of acceptance in the neuroscience world, the the level of publication, uh, the the journals that are publishing about it, that are open to publishing about it. This is all dramatically changed. I I sometimes joke that the future is so bright now I have to cover one eye. It's an astoundingly active growth that the field is in. Um, Next week, I won't be at the podcast because I have three lectures for a group in Spain. This last week, I had a lecture for for a a small society in Italy. Um, There's a European society. There's an Australasian society. There's there's groups all over now. And um, the the level of uh, quality of the equipment in the field has also dramatically improved. Uh, Some of the early equipment was just, mm, how can I say it gently? I can't. It was awful uh, uh the, the, there were devices that just did not work. Um, and, uh, I, uh, one of my first trips to Australia, uh, I was preceded a few years before that by somebody who sold them a bunch of equipment that did not work at all. Uh, and the, <laughs> the second day I was there, they were, they were wondering, well, what are you trying to sell? I'm not, I'm not selling anything. I'm just here to educate, you know, they, they expected some kind of a sales. Um, But, you know, there are very few devices out there now that are awful devices. There were quite a few historically miscalibrated uh, amplifiers that would fail with a static electrical charge. Shuffle your feet on the carpet and touch the patient and the amplifier blows. You know, so uh, we've gotten rid of the really trashy stuff. Most all of the equipment in the field works pretty well. Uh, some of it more quality than others, but um, if you're in the field, you have a, a pretty good idea of, of which group of uh, practitioners you want to work with and uh, and the, the equipment that they're working with. And it's it's a it's a very bright future with very solid devices at this point, uh, generally available. There there are some. Uh, uh, little backwaters of uh, uh, old devices that are still around, but uh, they're they're pretty easily identifiable once you're in the field. People kind of warn you away from them if you're uh, if, if you're listening.
2: Jay, what are they using in the big hospitals? I mean, I know what we have in our in our little offices. You know, the amplifiers that back in your day filled up a whole room and. Fine, uh, what was it <laughs> r- redwood cabinets that you had? That
0: they were, <laughs> uh, the actually, pens- the, uh, the walnut cabinets were very, very big in the in the nineteen uh, uh, seventies and uh, early eighties. Um, but you know, uh, the, the early equipment was really not well uh, considered. Uh, They had zero cross detector apps and they would tell you what the dominant frequency is by counting how many times it crossed the zero point and dividing by two. Um, But if you're a little tiny fast signal riding on top, they couldn't see it. So, um, you know, SMR for instance, is usually a very small signal riding on top, not, uh, not a a dominant frequency. So, you know, and that was one of the major equipment lines, Autogen 120, uh, which was a, Uh, 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 it was worth its weight in Walnut and um, if you opened up the chassis, there was enough room inside of it to carry your lunch, you know? So it was, uh, um, and there were things on the back panel, plug-in things on the back panel that didn't even have wires hooked to them. So, um, you know, we've come a long ways from uh, dummied up equipment that didn't work very well. Uh, But at this point, it's hard to find something that's not a solid amp. Um, uh, the, the the equipment has had uh, most of the trash washed out of it uh, because of you know people identifying it that it's not working very well and uh, uh, the, the the groups basically uh, end up identifying what works well and not and the things that don't work well they might pop up one year but they go away within a year or two
2: and FDA that's that's a big thing right here mm-hmm. in the states is in Israel is yeah. some type of government that you know.
0: Internationally, there's different regulatory groups. Europe has its own. Uh, Israel probably has its own. Uh, U.S., Korea, Australia, um, uh, but the the FDA in the U.S. Um, has been neurofeedback uh, 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 has been low on their radar. Uh, it's it's a it, it, it's not really a, a big hazard. Uh, there's not a lot of customer complaints. Uh, Nobody gets electrocuted. Um, Nobody gets uh, 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 surgical problems. I mean, there's the FDA is paying attention to lots of other major equipment and drugs that end up having difficulties. Neurofeedback is usually low on their priority list because it's a very low uh, hazard. Uh, It doesn't mean that they don't pay any attention. Um, uh, Neurofeedback is basically approved essentially for relaxation. The one thing it's approved for in the U.S., relaxation, alpha training. That's it. If you make a claim other than alpha training, you're outside the FDA's uh, approval. And uh, as such, the equipment manufacturers make the equipment, but they can't talk about what it's used for. Uh, uh, If they say you can treat ADD with this, or you can treat somebody that has epilepsy with this device. At that point, they're making a diagnostic claim uh, and a treatment claim, and the, the manufacturer would have the FDA saying, well, uh, you're approved for relaxation training in alpha. Uh, you're making a claim outside of that, so either you provide the evidence and go through the 510k approval for that application, or uh, you end up having a, 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 a claim that you can be fined for substantially. The, the way around it is that the FDA doesn't regulate clinicians and they don't edu- they don't regulate educating groups. Uh, so uh, a manufacturer will have an affiliated lecturing outfit. Uh, BrainMaster has stress therapy solutions, and they're a separate corporation. Uh, They do education. They don't sell equipment. Um, uh, The manufacturer lists the equipment and the price and availability, but they don't tell you what it's uh, applicable for, uh, because if they did, they would be in trouble. Now it's kind of silly in some respects because, you know, the efficacy for ADD is well established. Uh, The efficacy for Epilepsy is actually well-established. There's probable efficacious uh, uh, level support for PTSD and affective regulatory problems and so forth. So the FDA really should be opening up some of the applications for uh, manufacturers to actually talk about. Um, but that's going to require somebody actually going through that process, which is not easy. Uh, it's expensive and time-consuming, and one small manufacturer in this little teeny tiny niche field really has trouble affording a million dollars to go through a regulatory process to get the approval to say it can be used for something. When it's easy enough to just say, talk to them, you know, the, the educational people are over there. I can't tell you anything. Talk to them. And it's, it saves you a million dollars by having a group that other people can, can talk to. But it still limits the uh, uh, sales and uh, uh, marketing capability of manufacturers.
1: We integrated the neurofeedback into um, inpatient acute wards. Um, and we try to do it quickly, you know, not just to, to wait, but just like quickly see. As I said, we we adopted... Um, seaburn um, um, logic in terms of like down regulating or up regulating or stabilizing and then we um, um, trained uh, a couple of neuropsychologists um, uh, to use um, s- like three simple protocols and we integrated very quickly into the into the treatment and we saw that it led to very very nice um, um let's say relief and also progression uh, treatment progression in schizophrenia. So we didn't aim, of course, schizophrenia symptoms or whatever. We were just trying to um, relax the system and like regulate the arousal so it can permit um, better communication, better compliance, better sleep, um better concentration. So being part, for example, in treatment groups, we can attend more, you know, to what's going on and be part of the happening. So we did this really small, short, you know, intervention in order to um, contribute uh, to the down regulation or up regulation of the system to support the, the team effort in this treatment course. Um, and I wanted, like, I mean, when you look at the literature, there aren't almost any work on schizophrenia besides uh, Professor, one professor from um, from Turkey, from Istanbul, that did a lot of work on. Um, and I met him once in a conference T- here.
0: Tanju Sumeli.
1: Yes, Sumeli. Yeah. Um, and and I was wondering you know wh- what what is your approach what is your knowledge from from seeing a lot of EEGs if you treated some schizophrenia patients, etc?
0: you know uh, schizophrenia doesn't have a single presentation. Yes. Um, there's there's been some early work on it quantitatively by Roy John's uh, lab at NYU uh, now under, uh, Leslie Pritchup's guidance, uh, uh is passing. Um, and they 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 basically found some over-arousal, lower voltage, faster EEGs, and beta-spindly EEGs. But uh one of the one of the more recent uh studies that I uh, uh, kind of appreciate and ends, ends up being one where they actually look at uh, psychosis, schizophrenic uh, uh psychosis. They found a third of the people with psychosis have epileptiform content to the EEG. And if you give somebody that has epileptiform EEG content an antipsychotic, it makes them worse. If you don't look at the EEG and, you know, if you walk into the hospital and you're uh, psychotic, uh, uh, broken with reality, It isn't like they suddenly suspect they should do an EEG always. Um, They'll give you an antipsychotic medication because you're psychotic. Um, But a third of them, it's a mistake. If you don't actually look at the brain function before you decide on your course of treatment, you might have somebody that has something totally different. Uh, You know, an inflammatory change in the brain from uh, something. I mean, there's, there's other things. But one-third of them will have form content. You can see easily, and it changes the course of therapy. You use an anti convulsant instead of an antipsychotic. And, uh, and, and the, the patients turn around very quickly. Uh, I, I had uh, a short uh, bit of work I did with the U.S. military as a no-bid contractor. It, it took a long time to get the status of a no bid military contractor, but uh, they could then send us EEGs to look at and and we could give them results without having to go through competitive bidding for uh, for every uh, EEG report. And um, uh, the, they, they gave us six clients uh, to see whether we could give them any benefit. And of the first six clients, three of them were temporal lobe epileptics. The odds of that are almost impossible. I mean, I, I I would have bet uh, a lot that we wouldn't get three temporal epileptics if you just drew six clients. But um, the the first one was hearing voices and he was a Marine. The voices were telling him to kill people and they, they weren't just commanding officer. They were inside of his head. You know, they weren't, these weren't like command voices from outside from a military supervisor. These were voices in his head telling him to kill people. And if you tell somebody that you're hearing voices telling you to kill people, they'll probably give you an antipsychotic and they did and it got worse. So eventually they sent the data to us and we spoke to the attending physician and said, you've got to take this, this guy off of the antipsychotic drugs. You're telling a psychiatrist that their psychotic patient needs to come off their antipsychotic drugs. This is a, this is a big risk. I mean, um, if I take the patient off these drugs and he does something, there's a gigantic liability. Um, people blame me for whatever he does. Um, and, uh, you know, we realize the liability, but at the same time, you got a patient, and they're being mistreated right now. So, really, your liability is a secondary consideration to your client's health. And um, the 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 doctor put him in the brig, the, the military prison basically in order to to take him off of his antipsychotics without having the liability for the psychiatrist and to put him on uh, anticonvulsants and the voices went away uh uh, so it worked very very well um this repeated itself two more times out of six people and uh, as such we got an open-ended invite to process for them um uh, that went until sequester which was a uh, cut back on uh, outside contractors for the military, and uh, so we we lost half of the business for the company all at once. but We were expanding our business so fast. I was happy to shed the half that we that we got rid of um, uh, because we we had more people to serve. Um, you can see uh, another group here: mood disorders. Mood disorders: three percent, three percent. Uh, that's like the normal background population incidence of randomly finding some discharge of some sort. But if their mood didn't make sense, um, and th- their mood's going to make sense to them, but if it doesn't make objective sense to somebody outside of them, um, at that point, a third of them had epileptiform discharges. You could view the mood problems as pseudo bulbar affect, uh, uh, t- temporal discharges give you uh, out of control emotions Uh the old term is not appropriate anymore for diagnosing an, an epilepsy but it's descriptive a fit of laughter well the term fit is is the the trigger I mean the person's not having fun laughing they're not laughing at something that's funny they're hysterically laughing uh, and and they would just as soon not be laughing. Uh, it's, it's out of control, and they realize it quite often. A fit of anger, where they're acting out a rage event, um, these kind of mood uh, things can end up being epileptiform in nature. So uh, we've got to be aware when somebody is behaving in, a, in, in an unreal way, a, a psychiatric disturbance of some sort, uh, th- there's a good chance... If, if one out of three people are going to have epileptic content, don't you think you should look yes. because it's going to dramatically change their treatment. That's appropriate to match them. If, if they're just full of beta, you can wind them down. If they're under aroused, you can wind them up. But if they have this kind of an instability, you've got to stabilize them.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Once you stabilize these discharges, if they're stable and they are not discharging, the network that makes them will finally fade away. If you don't use it, you lose it. It, uh, If you fire together, you wire together. Those are two basic processes within the brain. And every time you make a discharge, it's easier to make that discharge. And it might make a little bit more turf involved as well. It might add in a little piece. Uh, But every time you make it not work, it slowly sheds a spoke and a hub the network that makes it may fade away. You might still have a focus, but it may not have a network. And at that point, you're asymptomatic. So um, we we, we work very hard on people that have psychiatric presentations to make sure that they don't have epileptiform content. If they have it, we treat that directly. Uh, If they have over arousal or under arousal, that's easily dealt with with neurofeedback, uh, neurofeedback teaches you to increase or decrease your arousal level quite readily. It's been one of the applications that have been done since the early days. Uh, Lubar used to do CZSMR, beta. Othmers did C3Beta and C4SMR, and then they started to reach out in some other areas. But the, the, the basics, since the late 80s, early 90s, have been able to teach control of arousal level. And Sturman's work on SMR and the European work on slow cortical potentials in epilepsy uh, apply directly to these kind of discharges. So we really have the tools to manage these psychiatric disturbances. If we see what they are, we we can match the protocol to their presentation. If you don't look, you're making some assumptions and, you know, the over-arousal, under-arousal, Uh, not that hard to spot usually, but the epileptiform content is awfully hard to predict, and uh, it it doesn't always show as convulsions. Um, The psychiatric disturbances of pseudobulbar affect are are an example of that. They're not having a convulsion. They're they're, they're having behavioral manifestations, and uh, um, not as easy to spot.
1: Once I had this uh, experience online, I was uh, setting up a patient, and I was sitting uh, during the neurofeedback session with the patient. Um, and at a certain point, I was looking at the EEG screen, and I saw like all this like uh, overcoherent activity happening. And I looked at the patient, and he seems to be kind of disconnected. And I asked him what happened. And then afterward, I reanalyzed the EEG files during the neurofeedback trainings because the, the the QEG file was was too short and it didn't happen during these five minutes that I recorded. So I looked at all these sessions to see if I see any kind of pattern, and we sent him to a neurologist, and he were and we changed the medication consequently, which, which was very helpful. But that was yeah. like you know just by accident because I was sitting there. Uh, yeah. I was always sitting with patients, but I actually saw something happening online, yeah. um, and I could you know immediately intervene constantly you know and change the course yeah. treatment.
0: And, but and it, imagine all the therapy that goes on without the EG uh, uh, being done in parallel or in, in the background in some fashion. You know, uh, um, I, I'm I'm going to share another. Uh, piece of information. This is an ADD ADHD. About a third of the people that have ADD ADHD have unexpected epileptiform discharges. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, uh, but look at this one study 4%. That's down like the background population. And Martin Arns is a major researcher. I mean, isn't this 4% valid then? The difficulty is that he was using two minute EEGs instead of 20-minute EEGs, and these are meeting minimum guidelines of 20 minutes, and if you only do two-minute EEGs, you have a much lower chance of seeing a transient. There's a medical minimum guideline in the U.S. of 20 to 30 minutes, and 20 minutes is the bare minimum, Uh, and two minutes just really doesn't cut it. The reason that the 20 to 30 minute standard was set was basically the doctors and techs basically decided if you do too short a study, you're likely not to see a transient, a a rare discharge. And how long do you need to do to get a half a chance of seeing it? 20 minutes gives you a little over 50% chance of seeing a discharge in a known epileptic. So a two minute study inadequate. A five-minute study hmm, is better than two, but it isn't quite there yet. Um, and nobody wants to run 20 minutes sitting there staring at a wall with your eyes open. As 10 minutes eyes open, 10 minutes eyes closed, or seven minutes eyes open, seven minutes eyes closed, and seven minutes of some kind of a task. But you've got to exceed 20 minutes just to make sure you're not missing the rare discharge. I did an EEG review yesterday. It had one full-blown epileptic form discharge in a 20-minute in study, eyes open, eyes closed combined. Uh, it, was a, it was dramatic discharge. In between that, there were some little hints, but there wasn't anything diagnostically significant until the discharge. So the, uh, the total amount of time recorded ends up being critical as to what you can end up seeing. And I would urge people to try to meet the minimum guidelines. They're there for a reason. Um, If you're doing mini studies, little itty bitty studies to try and uh, assess the client, it's better than not looking. But uh, looking for an adequate amount of time will make sure you're not uh, missing just because of your procedures being so brief uh, that you're not missing a client's discharge.
1: But I believe it, it gives you a more reliable uh, picture also of like the spectral and not just like the, the discharges. So it's not yeah. just about missing the discharges, but having like, uh, let's say, averages that are like more reliable.
0: Yes, no? that's correct. The other thing is in the eyes closed, you know, the, the Europeans have uh, not just the uh, normative database kind of an approach for analysis. They also have the vigilance model. And the vigilance model requires 10 minutes of eyes closed EEG uninterrupted. You don't cut out pieces and throw them away. They want to see the dynamics of the EEG across time and ipsative or an iterative uh, uh, analytic process. How does that start? If you're wide awake, you've got alpha in the back of your head, eyes closed. But as you start to get a little less uh, vigilant and attentive and you can't control your attention quite as well the alpha goes into the front as well and that's a from a1 to an a2 stage and then a3 alpha is dominant up front bigger than the alpha in the back of the head and at that point you're not as vigilant as you were when you had alpha just in the back of your head Uh, and you can judge that by how well they respond to to, uh, uh, tasks that uh, actually judge their vigilance at that point alpha drops out you're starting to actually get into a drowsy state. Uh, if you wake somebody, if you alert somebody that's got the alpha having dropped out, and say, "Are you sleeping?" No, of course not. Of course, they're not sleeping. It's just drowsiness. It's not sleep. People drive their cars that way all the time. Uh, I got to exit 20. How did I get here? Last I remember, I was exit exit 10. Well, you were in highway hypnosis, stage one drowsing. You didn't drive out of your lane. You didn't have an accident. But at the same time, if something happened, you'd have to alert, orient, and response. Your reaction time will be slow, um, but you didn't drive out of your lane. You're not in stage two sleep, but you're not alert and vigilant. So alpha drops out, then theta starts to happen, then theta becomes prominent. That form of analysis requires a 10-minute steady EEG, not a two-minute or a five-minute uh, quick study, um, In fact, the first five minutes are expected to be wide awake, A stages, no B stages. The second five minutes, they expect some light B stages, but at no point during the 10 minutes do they expect you to fall into stage two sleep, which they call stage C. And in our EEG recordings, it's very common for us to see people with sleep disorders, and there's more of them now than there used to be. And uh, they they have vertex sharp wave of stage two sleep before five minutes. And that means they're so sleepy, they have to go to a sleep lab, uh, that they've had a precipitous descent into stage two sleep. They can't stay awake even during the day with their eyes closed for five minutes. There's something wrong with their sleep at night. In a sleep lab, they call it a DOES, D-O-E-S, disorder of excessive sleepiness. And uh, if you go in complaining of insomnia, they, they have trouble getting paid for the testing. But if you can't stay awake during the day, that's their bread and butter. That, that's where they make their money. And most of the time, it's people like me, older, a little overweight, probably snoring, you know, a little apnea. Uh, that they'll, they'll give you a CPAP device or uh, shrink your soft palate with a laser. There's, there's a lot of treatments for obstructive apnea. But there are other kinds of sleep disorder, too and a sleep lab will identify precisely what kind. Nobody dies of restless leg syndrome. Apneas can kill you. Um, And my last business partner, Jack Johnstone, passed in his sleep. He had a sleep lab, you know, but he didn't use a CPAP that night, and he passed in his sleep. So apneas can kill you, central or obstructive. You don't have to be big and old and Uh, overweight to end up having snoring apnea. That's not the only kind you can be a skinny little kid and have a central apnea and, uh, and, and and still have great difficulties. Restless leg syndrome, circadian rhythm delay, uh, parasomnias, uh, 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 little kids have night terrors um, that there's, but you've got to, you've got to actually do a study. You can't just say, Oh, you're having trouble sleeping. And ignore the the, the, uh, the underlying uh, uh, diagnostic evaluation, uh, mm-hmm. you, you have to find the the cause and treat the cause. If you're doing neurofeedback and the person has a sleep disorder, you can expect them to have two or three times more sessions than somebody who was sleeping well during sleep, you long term potentiate your memory. What I learned today won't be there tomorrow unless I long-term potentiate it. So if I learned X, Y, Z tricks during my neurofeedback session today, I might only have X tomorrow. The Y, Z went away because it didn't potentiate. Slow-wave sleep gives you growth of dendritic connections. REM sleep, you play back memories through the connections and potentiate them. So if you're not sleeping, you may lose what you think you gained today and have to do it all over again tomorrow. Uh, and you don't want to pay for twice as many sessions as you should have. Fix the sleep. And at that point, you get the learning curve.
2: Uh, Karen, you're in Israel, we're in the States. Uh, how is mental health uh, looked upon? Uh, is it a stigmatism? People don't want to admit that they have a, a mental health problem. It's like that here. What's it like over in Israel?
1: I think it's, um, it's on the verge of changing. Maybe not enough, but something is going on. I think there's more and more discussion about the way we deal with mental health. Um, also, th- the way we over-diagnose and over-treat medically. I think some of the people who were previously involved in uh, a lot of the psychiatric uh, research uh, like Tom insel um and and then kind of maybe see things a bit differently today. Um, and there's more criticism with how we approach mental health and and I hope I don't know, I hope because i in the in the past year, I also work a lot with elderly. so there's a, a whole movement on how to think about this age. More positively and prepare for it, and take and, and take you know more active position to train your brain, to be active, to take care of your health, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, after you retire, um, so I I really hope that this is a general kind of perspective that we are supposed to be more aware and knowledgeable about ourselves. About um, what's going on with us, you know how certain situations in life kind of, you know, overactivate, you know, our patterns, what trigger us, and how we can get the the proper response. Um, and, and I hope, I think with technology and startups and more open discussion because of like social media, then maybe there is a certain movement into rethinking um, mental health. I don't know if you feel the same movement in the U.S., although I read a lot of what's going on in the U.S. and we're highly affected by the U.S. in Israel.
0: Well, I don't think you have any argument here about the DSM not being necessarily the the, <laughs> the gold standard of how to do things. Um, we, uh, we, we have uh, uh, the, uh, a... Dumpster voodoo, fire here. Voodoo doll. We, we, we stick <laughs> uh, needles in the voodoo doll of the DSM all the time, you know. Um, uh, and, and you're right. Uh, uh, Tom uh, did a, a wonderful service by declaring it an invalid document before it was published and that that rocked the psychiatry world in a major way there's been a lot of pushback um, people trying to maintain the inertia of being able to operate the way they've been used to operating but then change is very difficult for people and um, that they hold on to old structures and methods Um, but it's falling away. uh, the, the the behavioral based diagnosis is being replaced with biomarkers and phenotypes and genotypes and um, uh, objective lab tests. You know uh, um, the uh, uh, psychiatry is being held to the same kind of a standard that cardiology was held to. You know if you're just complaining of chest pain and you did angioplasty on everybody who had a chest pain. Half of them would have indigestion and not need a angioplasty. So the symptom just tells you what testing to consider. It doesn't tell you how to treat. And the symptom in psychiatry should tell them they have to do an examination of something, usually the brain or chemistry and, you know, trying to figure out what the root cause is as opposed to what's the symptom. Um, symptoms are stories. People tell stories and they change. Um, so uh, they're not a reliable uh, way to, to judge things. If you go to a doctor's
2: office and you get that clipboard, I'm assuming it's the same way in Israel. You have to fill out your history and, and, and whatnot. Why don't doctors be more open to, hey, could you submit for a DNA sample so you could see what the propensity is for these diseases versus taking your word for it? It's sort of like the same thing, you know, in, with, with mental health, you know, and, and doing an EEG. Am I off base thinking that way? Because like when I talk to my doctor about my DNA, because when 23 and Me came out, I don't know, a dozen years ago, whatever, I was the first one all in, and then the FDA came in and cracked them down. But I got one for my whole family and say, look, guys, take, who knows if this is going to happen, but keep an eye out for boom, 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 boom. Some members in the family didn't want to know. Others, you know, certain peoples in the population, well, hey, I don't want to know. Don't take a brain scan. I don't want to know if something's wrong upstairs. Is
0: that what's going on? You know, um, <laughs> we... We've got, uh, all sorts of kinds of testing, uh, genetic testing for medication prediction, largely looks at liver, um, uh, function and, and, uh, uh, uh how you process the, are you a rapid metabolizer or not? And, uh, they're, they're getting closer to actually uh, looking at brain neurotransmitter stuff, but it's, uh, it's been largely a, a metabolic pathway. Um, uh, um, you know, I've, I've taught uh, EG groups for a long time. And uh, historically, back in the beginning, it, w- it wasn't really a whole bunch of MD-PhDs in the audience. There weren't a lot of psychiatry folks in the audience. There weren't a lot of neurology folks in the audience. Um, it was master's degree counselors and psychologists and uh, meditators and you know, p- people interested in biofeedback, neurofeedback. But uh, about maybe twelve years ago or so, I had a psychiatrist uh, uh, attend one of my courses, and I ruined his career. Uh, he He was a normal psychiatrist doing normal you know walk in the door, tell me your story, I'll prescribe you a med. If it works, great. if it doesn't work, come back, we'll try something else. you know, just a regular practice. Uh, but he, he got bit by the brainwave bug and, and he, um, uh, he, he basically changed his practice. Uh, his wife started to tell him, don't spend more money on all this crazy equipment, a TMS device for a quarter million dollars, um, uh, more EG amplifiers and databases. And, um, uh, finally, he got rid of his wife. Uh, because he was hooked on this uh, crazy neuroscience thing and, and she was dead set against spending money on it. And, but he he ended up with a two page spread in the Washington post uh, talking about his practice. Uh, uh, You can't, well, you could, I suppose if you're a a billionaire pay for a two page spread in the Washington post, but um, it changed his practice in a major way. He had people come from Australia and Europe to come to him for assessments if you walk in the door of his practice today, there's an EG tech in the, in the lobby that hooks you up. They look at your EG if he's going to change your meds. They look at your EG if you're going to do TMS or biofeedback or neurofeedback or talk therapy. They look at your brain activity and they track it across time. So uh, he now has a registered EG tech doing hookups and uh, it's, it's changed his practice. His psychiatry practice, he doesn't call himself a psychiatrist anymore. He calls himself a neurotherapist. And you know, um, so are things changing? Things are changing in a crazy way. They're uh, the, the, the very ground under our feet is shifting. Um, uh, the, the high end of people that have picked up this tool are starting to change their practices. Earlier, we mentioned Tanju Sermeli in in Turkey, in Istanbul. Uh, uh, The psychiatrists there uh, challenged his license. He was doing EEG uh, and QEG and neurofeedback. And they they said, well, (laughs) you're you're doing voodoo. You're not doing psychiatry. And uh, they were trying to take his license away. Uh, uh, We had to get people in the U S and in Europe and uh, and internationally to write letters of support. Societies wrote letters of support. Uh, Basically they, they backed off and didn't take away his license, but you know, things have changed since then. Now he has a television show. It's like Dr. Oz sort of, or Dr. Somebody here in the United States, I guess, Dr. Oz is a little bit more political now, but uh, um, you know, the, I was in London with him and people at the airport were wanting to take pictures with him. Uh, They would recognize him as a TV star. Um, And his practice has a waiting list. They're waiting months to get in for him. The psychiatrists who are challenging his license are now trying to figure out what it is he's doing and, and be able to do them also because he's got a waiting list and they don't. So, you know, uh, it's changing, and it's working, and it's expanding, and it's growing. And I'm happy to see my old friend Doron Todor is now a head of a psychiatry group over in Israel. Um, that that um, we're, we're becoming the foundational people as opposed to the outliers um, that, that aren't thinking straight, according to others. So uh, uh, things are changing. It's, it's going to take time. But the change is afoot and uh, and it's real positive. Karen Avarami, neuroscientist,
2: thank you so much for joining us on the show today.
1: Thank you. It was a pleasure.
2: Jay, thank you for working overtime, man. You you earned your keep this week. I'm going to pay you double. (laughs) <laughs> zero times two. Oh, zero times two. You and me both. <laughs> hey, we th- we thank you all for listening to Neuro Noodles, Neurofeedback and Neuropsychology podcast. We'd like to thank our Patreon business supporters. Mary Tracy's Neurotraining Strategies offers a higher standard of EEG, qeg education to EEG clinicians, technicians and neurofeedback practitioners with convenient online BCA and qeg certified didactic courses. Register now at egstrategies.com. Hey, please subscribe to our YouTube channel. It really helps. It takes three people from learning about neurofeedback and Israel mental health to 3,000. That little click and like is a di- difference maker. Subscribe now. Let's turn them three people to 3,000. Hey, do you have an idea for a topic or d- guest? Please email pete at or leave us a voicemail. Please give us five stars on Apple's podcast. And hey, If you have the, uh, if it comes to you in the middle of the night, say, you know what? I like to do more for neurofeedback. We are not against you supporting us on Patreon slash NeuroNoodle. We love our Patreon
0: peeps, don't we, Jay? Absolutely. They get awfully good coverage here for awfully little price. Especially this show. Cue the music.